Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today as we continue our Marilyn Monroe mirror ball episodes, bringing Marilyn into the year 1962. This episode is going to focus on January to May of 1962 within the life of Marilyn And we most assuredly have moved into the bridge of Mirrorball by Taylor Swift. Before we begin our episode today, I want to take out my spyglass and give tremendous thanks to our newest supporters at patreon.com slash done and done, Annie P, Kathina M, and Kim R. Holy cats, y'all are amazing. Getting ad-free episodes and bonus episodes as well. One of the bonuses that came out this past week was me dissecting Taylor Swift against Marilyn Monroe. We had another Gore Vidal bonus of him talking about Dominic Dunn, Jack Kennedy, and Jacqueline Kennedy as well. Lots of good stuff happening over in our Patreon.com Done and Done community if you're interested in getting a little bit more out of your investigation. Big thanks to our newest Patreon supporters. Big thanks to our existing Patreon supporters, and big thanks to you for coming back to listen today. We have moved into the bridge. We have been in the verses so far with Marilyn on her tallest tiptoes, shining just for us. Moving into the bridge here, holy cat, y'all. They called off the circus, burned the disco down. When they sent home the horses and the rodeo clowns, I'm still on that tightrope. I'm still trying everything to get you laughing at me. I'm still a believer, but I don't know why. I've never been a natural. All I do is try, try, try. I'm still on that trapeze. I'm still trying everything to keep you looking at me. That is Marilyn in 1962. It is quite a year. We have brought our players and our pieces together for this episode. What happens in Marilyn Monroe's life from January to May 1962? Let's investigate. Welcome to 1962. Let's remember, though, that 1961 was a year away from Marilyn. She was very much out of the public spotlight. Her divorce was completed, and she will have many surgeries in the year of 1961. She's staying out of the public eye. That will change in 1962. Marilyn officially moves back to California in 1962, buying her first home. Well, the first home she's ever owned by herself, Eunice Murray. Eunice is the housekeeper that has been helpfully arranged for Marilyn by her analyst, Dr. Greenson. Lots more coming on Eunice and Dr. Greenson, but Eunice, the housekeeper, has found this home at 
12305 Fifth Helena Drive. This is on what is known as the Numbered Helenas. This is an area of short dead-end streets off Carmelina Avenue, situated in between Santa Monica and the ocean. Marilyn Monroe, back in the previous few years, has been pretty smart with her cash. She deferred her earnings from previous years, so it is with the purchase price of $77,500 that Marilyn will purchase this home on Fifth Helena from its owners. Helpfully, Dr. Greenson, Marilyn's analyst, will set Marilyn up with his brother-in-law as well to complete the sale. Dr. Greenson's brother-in-law will act as Marilyn's new attorney, and all of her business assets are transferred to him in the meantime. Dr. Greenson is Marilyn's new analyst, and he is going to have some very questionable treatments for his patient. Marilyn is not at all treated typically by him. It is very much out of the bounds of the proper doctor-patient relationship. More coming on that next week. Marilyn's new home is in Brentwood. The home is single-story. It's a Spanish hacienda style with three bedrooms. There's a red-tiled roof, thick stucco walls, a beamed cathedral ceiling, an established garden, and a swimming pool, too. It's not bad. It's really kind of a wonderful place to call her own, finally. If you go to the front door, there are inlaid tile on the front door. These inlaid tiles read Cursum Perficio, Latin for I finish the course. Although Marilyn will keep her New York City apartment, her home on Fifth Helena will be her established residence throughout the year of 1962. Joe DiMaggio is going to help her move in. Her good friends, Peter Lawford and his wife, Patricia Kennedy, are about 15 minutes away. Marilyn will be spending a lot of time with the Kennedy Lawfords this year. Depending on who and how you go to to source the story, it is also in this time period that John F. Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe are completing their love affair, if you can call it that. JFK and Marilyn are the undercover party talk in Hollywood. That's what's going on. Very subtly at first, but the talk does get louder and louder from the end of 1961 all the way throughout 1962. The author Daniel Spado writes of four of these occasions between Jack and Marilyn in his work, Marilyn Monroe, The Biography. In Spado's telling, the first meeting between the two is in October 1961 at a party at Patricia and Peter's home. This party is given for John F. Kennedy, but Marilyn Monroe is not the only blonde beauty in attendance that particular night. Marilyn is attending this party with Kim Novak, Janet Lee, and Angie Dickinson. Spotto recalls the second encounter being in February 1962. This time, it's a dinner party for JFK in New York City. This dinner party is hosted by Fifi Fell. She is the socialite widow of a famous industrialist. James Spada, in his book, The Man Who Kept the Secrets About Peter Lawford, will recall this particular event. The first was a black tie dinner party in the president's honor given by Fifi Fell, a socialite, in her Park Avenue penthouse. 
Around 7 o'clock, Milton Evans, Peter's manager, and Dave Powers, a presidential aide, were dispatched to pick Marilyn up at her apartment. We got there at about 7.30, dinner was at 8, and she wasn't ready, Evans recalled. Powers didn't want to wait for her, so he told me to stay and went back to the party, then sent the limousine back for us. As Evans sat and waited, he noticed that everything in the apartment was white. The rugs, the ceilings, the walls, the furniture, even a piano. At 8 o'clock, Marilyn's maid told Evans that the hairstylist, Kenneth, was finishing up Marilyn's hair. She should be out very soon. At 8.15, the phone rang and Evans picked it up. It was Peter. Where is she? The president's here. Everybody's waiting. She's not ready yet. I'm sitting here waiting for her. Come on, Peter shouted. Dinner's practically ready. At 8.30, the maid announced to Evans that Marilyn should be out in just a few minutes. By 9 o'clock, there was still no Marilyn. Peter called again. You son of a bitch, he screamed at Evans. By 9.30, Evans couldn't take it anymore. He opened Marilyn's door and walked into her bedroom. She was sitting at her vanity table, naked, staring at herself in the mirror. Marilyn, for Christ's sakes, he said. Come on, the president's waiting. Everybody's waiting. Marilyn looked at him dreamily. Oh, she said. Will you help me on with my dress? So I'm watching this giant international movie star standing there stark naked in her high heels, Evans recalled. She puts a scarf over her hair so it won't get mussed and pulls on this beaded dress over her head. This dress was so tight it took me ten minutes to pull it down over her ass. She says, take it easy. Don't tear the beads. I'm on my knees, inching this dress down over her ass and my face is right at her crotch, but I'm not thinking of anything but getting her to that goddamn party. Finally, at ten o'clock, Monroe was ready. Evans was astounded. Whew. She did look sensational, like a princess. I said to her, Jesus Christ, you sure are pretty. She just said, thank you. Marilyn put a red wig over her hair, slipped on dark glasses, and rode in the limousine with Evans to Park Avenue. When they arrived, 50 photographers were milling around the lobby of the building. Not one of them recognized Marilyn. When she got off the elevator, three Secret Service men watched her slip off the wig, take off the glasses, and become Marilyn Monroe again. As she and Evans entered the apartment, Jack Kennedy had his back to them. He turned around, smiled at Marilyn, and said, Hi. She sashayed up to him, and he took her arm. Come on, he said to her. I want you to meet some people. As they walked away, Marilyn looked back at Milt Evans and winked. For a few seconds, Evans thought he was in the clear. Then someone grabbed him by the back of his neck and pulled him into a bedroom. It was Peter, red with fury. You son of a bitch, he hissed, and raised his fist, measuring Evans for a punch. Dave Powers grabbed Evans by the collar and tore open his shirt at the neck. When Evans managed to calm the two men down, he learned that there had been no dinner. Everybody just ate hors d'oeuvres and drank and got blind drunk and happy as larks, he recalled being told. Nobody cared about dinner after a while. They told me the chef tried to jump out the window. 
Here he had cooked a fabulous dinner for the President of the United States and nobody ate it. Can you imagine that scene? Continuing on, the third meeting of Jack and Marilyn, if you are inclined to go with this four meetings theory, happens in March of 1962. And wowza, this one comes with the whole story attached to it. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Bravo Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav Bros. Good job. See, there's been a visit to the West Coast, Palm Springs, in fact, that had been planned in the White House for months and months. And JFK and his people are going to head on out to sunny California for a little work and a little R&R. JFK has a visit to the airbase planned out there and a visit to the Biodefense Department at the University of California at Berkeley as well. Lots of stuff going on. And the president and his entourage naturally need somewhere to stay. For months now, the place that has been in the mind, in the imagination, according to some, for Kennedy's stay is Frank Sinatra's Twin Palms home in Palm Springs. Remember, John F. Kennedy and his entourage did stay at Frank's place when Jack was back running for president back in 1960. Remember, Frank Sinatra was such a big help, not only for the election, but the inauguration as well. We've moved on. It's the next year, and Frank and his ability to help JFK and Frank wanting to be JFK's BFF hasn't changed. The thing I want you to know is that Frank Sinatra has gone to extraordinary lengths to prepare for John F. Kennedy's visit until it all goes wrong. Visits planned for March the 24th. However, two days before this, March 22nd, 1962, boy detective uh, J. Edgar Hoover has a little lunch with Bobby Kennedy that day, the attorney general, Jack's brother, and J. Edgar is going to drop some news, a little bit of intel from the FBI here, so helpful J. Edgar is. Hoover kind of spills it all. He tells Bobby everything, and he kind of enjoys it as well. Hoover's talking about all the knowledge of all of John F. Kennedy's affairs. So many ladies, so little time. J. Edgar Hoover goes on to know all about the connection to Sam Giancana and Jack Kennedy as it concerns Judith Campbell and Castro and Cuba. Hoover can't keep his mouth shut and Bobby, as well, might have a little bit more intelligence. There's one account of this meeting that I find really, really interesting because this Palm Springs visit doesn't happen the way it's planned. In one telling, Hoover comes in, drops all this dish to Bobby about Jack, his ladies, Giancana. That's one story. But there's another account here of something that happens on March 22nd. This is from Lee Server in his book, Handsome Johnny, about Johnny Roselli. 
Remember Hollywood gangster, Johnny Roselli, friend to all. In Lee Server's account, provided to the author by Washington, D.C. police detective Joe Scheiman, the other information that's given to Bobby this day is that Hoover comes to Bobby with the actual audio from the bugged phone lines of Sam Giancana. According to Joe Scheiman, these conversations include Frank and Sam Giancana talking about all the things. One particular conversation, though, is more troublesome than others. In the recounting of this tale, in this conversation, Sam Giancana wants Frank Sinatra to help take off the pressure of the feds. Frank responds that he's doing the best he can, he's totally working on it, and then goes on to reveal that Frank Sinatra is having an affair with Patricia Lawford to ease the plan along. Apparently, in this audio recording, the telling of this liaison with Patricia Kennedy Lawford from Frank to Sam Giancana is blunt and nasty. Frank has vowed to, quote, sleep with this goddamn bitch until I get something going, unquote. Bobby has a meeting with Hoover. Maybe here's this tape. Whatever happens March 22nd happens on March 22nd and overnight suddenly, you know, for quote unquote security reasons, Frank Sinatra's Twin Palms home is out, shut down, shut out. Whether Frank Sinatra is having an affair with Patricia Kennedy, Bobby and Jack's sister, or maybe it's just not a good look for JFK to be hanging out with Frank Sinatra in his home. Frank is an associate of known mobsters. Whatever is decided, it is decided that JFK and crew will no longer be staying at the home of Frank Sinatra. Oh, it gets bad. I want you to remember back to the inauguration and how sticky things already are with Peter and Frank. Poor Peter Lawford. We've seen it back in February at the party at Fifi Fells. Peter Lawford always is kind of, for some reason, being the heavy for Jack when it comes to Maryland, when it comes to Hollywood people. It doesn't get any better at this point because, oh, poor Peter Lawford. Peter Lawford is the one who is given the task to tell Frank Sinatra that Frank Sinatra's home will no longer be used for Jack and Friends. Peter Lawford recalls to Kitty Kelly, who writes a biography on Frank Sinatra. Lawford says, It fell to me to break the news to Frank, and I was frankly scared. When I rang the president, I said that Frank expected him to stay at the Sinatra compound, and anything less than his presence there was going to be tough to explain. It had been kind of a running joke with all of us in the family that Frank was building up his Palm Springs house for such a trip by the president, adding cottages for Jack and the Secret Service, putting in 25 extra phone lines, installing enough cable to accommodate teletype facilities, plus a switchboard, and building a heliport. He even erected a flagpole, for the presidential flag after he saw one flying over the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport. No one asked Frank to do any of this, but he really expected his place to be the president's Western White House. Lawford continues, 
When Jack called me, he said that as president, he just couldn't stay at Frank's and sleep in the same bed that Sam Giancana or any other hood had slept in. You can handle it, Peter, he said to me. I made a few calls, but in the end, it was Chris Dumphy, a big Republican from Florida, who arranged everything at Bing Crosby's house. The Secret Service stayed next door at Jimmy Van Heusen's, and Frank didn't speak to him for weeks over that one, but I was the one who really took the brunt of it. He felt that I was responsible for setting Jack up to stay at Bing's, Bing Crosby of all people, the other singer and a Republican to boot. Well, Frank never forgave me. He cut me off like that, just like that. Frank Sinatra, for his part, cannot believe that Peter Lawford is telling him these things. Frank has built a helipad, for goodness sakes. Frank's been prepping. He's been working on his house for two years to make it the Western White House. And now Peter's breaking down the news that they're going to stay at Bing Crosby's house? Frank gets mad. Peter says, yeah, Bobby just doesn't think it's a good idea. Frank's going to pick up the phone and call Bobby, the attorney general, you know, at the Department of Justice in Washington. And Bobby explains it's impossible for the president to stay at his house because of the disreputable people that Frank knows. But it really had been blamed to Frank. Security reasons was what it was. Peter will continue just about this conversation. Frank was livid. He called Bobby every name in the book and then rang me up and reamed me out again. He was quite unreasonable, irrational, really. George Jacobs told me later that when he got off the phone, he went outside with a sledgehammer and started chopping up the concrete landing pad of his heliport. He was in a frenzy. The president will arrive at Bing Crosby's home. I'll give you a few details on this. Bing Crosby's home, pretty big place, 6,700 square feet. It has a detached two-bedroom casita at the time. This home is located in Rancho Mirage, California, in the Thunderbird Heights neighborhood. This is just outside of Palm Springs. The Crosbys moved into this home in 1957. They've been in it about five years by the time 1962 rolls around. Jack does come in town. He will call Frank Sinatra to smooth things over invite him over to Bing Crosby's house. Frank will decline the invitation, saying that he instead was going to Los Angeles. After this particular conversation between the president and Frank Sinatra, JFK tells Peter Lawford, quote, he's pretty upset, but I told him not to blame you because you didn't have anything to do with it. It was simply a matter of security. The Secret Service thought Crosby's place afforded better security. Peter Lawford within Kitty Kelly's Sinatra bio continues, That's the excuse we use, security, and we blamed it all on the Secret Service. We'd worked it out beforehand, but Frank didn't buy that for a minute. And with a couple of exceptions, he never spoke to me again. He cut me out of all the movies we were set to make together. Robin and the Seven Hoods, Four for Texas, and turned Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis, and Joey Bishop against me as well. Frank Sinatra, weird ways of taking out revenge. We've seen it before. We'll probably see it again. Frank Sinatra, though, doesn't seem to hold anything against Bing Crosby here. Bing Crosby isn't even home the weekend that his house is being used to host this big extravaganza. 
But I think possibly just to rub Peter's nose in it a little bit, Frank Sinatra will cast Bing Crosby in Robin and the Seven Hoods just to make it a little bit worse for Lawford. So Frank Sinatra, not really a great weekend, smashed up a helipad with a sledgehammer. Things are a little bit better over at Bing Crosby's home in Thunderbird Heights. It is the morning of March 24th that we will bring Marilyn back into this story. Marilyn that morning is going to go to the home of her analyst, Dr. Greenson. She needs to wash her hair in their bathtub. Might seem a little unusual at first, but plumbers are in her new home on 5th Helena installing a new water heater. And there's a party to go to. So, Peter Lawford is going to come pick Marilyn up to get her to Palm Springs for the party a little bit later in the morning. Marilyn that morning with Dr. Greenson is maybe looking to be reassured before she goes out for this weekend. Maybe the doctor gives her some warnings, some cautionary tales. Again, very interesting and somewhat inappropriate dynamic between Dr. Greenson and Marilyn. While Marilyn is getting ready on the morning of March the 24th, John F. Kennedy is meeting with former President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Peter Lawford will pick Marilyn up around noon in a black wig, driving her up to Bing Crosby's home, where she will be staying in one of those bedrooms in the two-bedroom casita in what is now known as the JFK Wing. Dinner is hosted that night, and at this particular party, March the 24th, Marilyn Monroe and John F. Kennedy do appear as a couple. One of the guests at the party, named Philip Watson, who is later the L.A. County solicitor, is like, yeah, they were there and obviously together. Philip Watson will also reinforce that he saw Jack and Marilyn in the previous November at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. They're not even hiding it. At this party, there's a party poolside. There's a party in the president's cottage. Philip Watson will tell Anthony Summers, author of the Monroe biography Goddess, that the president was wearing a turtleneck sweater and she was dressed in a kind of robe thing. She had obviously had a lot to drink. It was obvious they were intimate and that they were staying there together for the night. Peter Summers, a Kennedy political strategist who handled relations with television networks, will say about this particular weekend. Marilyn was delightful, a little bit nervous perhaps, but I think her nervousness was because she was in a new territory with people who were political animals. She wasn't totally at ease. I did feel that she was impressed by Kennedy's charm and charisma, that she was almost starry-eyed, but she was totally able to hold her own conversationally. She was very bright. Marilyn will return home on Sunday, calling her masseuse. Now, there's something interesting here. Marilyn, apparently over the weekend at Bing Crosby's home, picks up the phone to call her masseuse back in L.A. asking for some help because a friend of hers has back pain. The president will take the phone from Marilyn at this point and talk to the masseuse, but Marilyn will call the same masseuse Sunday when she gets home and reveals this was the only time she had an affair with the president and gave the impression that it had not been a significant episode for either of them. This is a masseuse from Donald Spato's book, where the masseuse says, of course, she was titillated beyond belief because for a year he had been trying. 
through Lawford to have an evening with her. A great many people thought after that weekend that there was more to it. It happened once that weekend and that was it. That's account number three of Marilyn and John F. Kennedy with a weekend of all kinds of chaos and sledgehammers as well. Moving us right along into the month of April. April, Marilyn Monroe really does return to the spotlight. She's beginning to film her first film since The Misfits back from 1960. Marilyn is back to Fox Studios for Something's Got to Give, co-starring Dean Martin. Marilyn Monroe will report for work on April the 23rd, although she will spend the spring preparing for her return to film. She goes to Mexico, she does a little furniture shopping as well, spends some time in Miami at South Beach. Not a, not a terrible year so far for Marilyn. Though returning to work on set by mid-May, Marilyn has only worked about a third of the shooting days. Shooting isn't really going all that well. Marilyn Monroe is sick. She has a virus of some kind and is clearly communicating to the studio that she is ill. She's not doing her best work, therefore she cannot work, and Fox Studios doesn't really give a hoot. By May, things are pretty bad in the relationship between Marilyn and the studio. Not too long before this, Fox had given Marilyn permission to attend and perform at the 45th birthday party of the president. Marilyn, although she had not been working per se every day on the set because of illness, doesn't stop Marilyn from boarding the plane May 17th after shooting that day to get to New York City to perform at the gala. Fox responds by issuing a suit alleging breach of contract. Things are going to get pretty dicey with Fox and we're going to come back to all of that in our next episode in order to get through this last pivotal piece of what happens in May. Because, oh May, oh what a night, holy cats. The president, John F. Kennedy, is going to have a televised 45th birthday party. This event happens Saturday, May 19th, live from Madison Square Garden. Jack's wife, Jacqueline, is not in attendance. She is attending a horse show in Virginia. But it sure does seem like everyone else in the world is attending. And this night will be talked about for ages. People are still talking about this night. I cannot describe the night of May the 19th any better than the way it is written about from James Spada, from his work, The Man Who Kept the Secrets. What a tale. Here we go. Marilyn's reputation for tardiness became a running gag at the star-studded fundraising gala in Madison Square Garden on May 19, 1962, held to celebrate the president's upcoming 45th birthday. Attended by 15,000 loyal Democrats, the extravaganza featured Jack Benny, Henry Fonda, Ella Fitzgerald, Peggy Lee, and Maria Callas, among others. It was Peter's idea to have Marilyn Monroe sing Happy Birthday to Jack as the evening's finale. Marilyn asked her favorite designer, Jean-Louis, famous for the sensational flesh-colored gowns he had created for Marlena Dietrich, to design something similar for her, a dress that would look like a second skin, quote-unquote. Made of flesh-colored mesh studded with rhinestones, the gown cost $5,000, 
and had to be sewn on. Marilyn wore no underwear beneath it. Mickey Song, who had cut Jack's and Bobby's hair for the occasion, begged Bobby to let him have a shot at Marilyn Monroe's hair. She didn't want me to work on her because she didn't know me, but Bobby convinced her. I didn't know if I'd get the chance until she showed up backstage at Madison Square Garden. Her hair had been set, but it needed some finishing touches. Song applied them in Marilyn's dressing room and added a sensational flip curl on Marilyn's right side, an effect he achieved by teasing her hair from beneath and, quote, using lots of hairspray, unquote, to keep the curl in place. While I was working on Marilyn, Song recalled, she was extremely nervous and uptight. The door was open and Bobby Kennedy was pacing back and forth outside. Finally, he came into the dressing room and said to me, would you step out for a minute? When I did, he closed the door behind him, and he stayed in there for about 15 minutes. Then he left and I went back in. Marilyn was all disheveled. She giggled and said, could you help me get myself back together? As showtime approached, Marilyn grew terrified. With the show's producer, Richard Adler, she had endlessly practiced the familiar verse to Happy Birthday and a stanza written especially for Kennedy. She had had trouble remembering the new material, and Adler warned the president that Monroe might flub lines. Oh, I think she'll be very good, Kennedy responded. As she waited in the wings to go on, Marilyn's nervousness threatened to undo her. She had been drinking to fortify herself, and by this point, she was visibly tipsy. With Peter on stage as an ad hoc master of ceremonies to introduce Marilyn, the pre-planned running gag began. As the president sat near Bobby and Ethel Kennedy, Peter gave Marilyn the first of several introductions. Mr. President, on this occasion of your birthday, this lovely lady is not only pulchritudinous, but punctual. Mr. President, Marilyn Monroe. A roar rose from the audience, but Marilyn did not appear. Then Peter introduced her again. A drum roll announced her entrance, but again, there was no Monroe. After a long pause, Peter continued, Mr. President, because in the history of show business, perhaps there has been no one female who has meant so much, who has done more, Mr. President, the late Marilyn Monroe. Cheers rocked the garden as Marilyn appeared on stage. Swathed in white ermine, taking tiny, mincing steps that were all she could manage in her skin-tight gown. She sidled up to Peter, who removed her fur and exited stage left. The thousands of rhinestones on Marilyn's dress reflected the spotlights and made her seem more a celestial vision than a human being. She stood silently in front of the microphone for several long moments, collecting herself. Then she breathed heavily, eliciting more cheers. After flicking the microphone with her finger to make sure it was working, she began to sing, slowly, breathily, sensually. She made the song seem somehow suggestive, particularly when she intoned, Happy Birthday, Mr. Pre-Z-Dent, Happy Birthday to You. Marilyn then urged the audience to join her. Come on, everybody, happy birthday. And a huge cake was wheeled on stage, 
Within a few minutes, the president was at the microphone. I can now retire from politics, he told the crowd, after having had happy birthday sung to me in such a sweet, wholesome way. Later, Marilyn attended a private party in Kennedy's honor, given by Arthur Krim, the head of United Artists. There, her glittery presence mesmerized the male guests, who, in addition to the Kennedy brothers, included Vice President Johnson, Adelaide Stevenson, and Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. Stevenson wrote a friend that Marilyn was wearing, quote, skin and beads. I didn't see the beads. My encounters, however, were only after breaking through the strong defenses established by Robert Kennedy, who was dodging around her like a moth around a flame. Schlesinger later wrote, Bobby and I engaged in mock competition for her. She was most agreeable to him and pleasant to me, but then she receded into her own glittering mist. There was something at once magical and desperate about her. Robert Kennedy, with his curiosity, his sympathy, his absolute directness of response to distress, in some way got through the glittering mist as few did. After Krim's party, Marilyn was whisked into the Carlisle Hotel to spend a few hours alone with the president. It would prove to be their last rendezvous. This particular weekend, this particular night, whoa, so much talked about. Peter Lawford has the absolutely worst introduction ever. From this point, when it comes to John Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe, the president will stop taking her calls. The talk, the gossip, the rumor and suggestion between the two, you know, right out there on broadcast television, the talk is just, it's too much. Whether Marilyn Monroe potentially begins some kind of something with Bobby Kennedy here too, May 19th is a big day for a lot of our players. But let's talk about that Jean-Louis dress for just a moment that Marilyn wears this night. This dress that Marilyn can barely walk as she is sewn into it. It is a sheer crystal emblazoned dress. I'll give you a few fun facts here. That dress was auctioned at Christie's in 1999, selling for the price of $1.15 million. The Jean-Louis dress is sold again in 2016, for $4.8 million. In the James Spada piece, it said the gown cost $5,000. I have another quote here that it cost $1,440, but either way you're looking at it, quite a return on your investment there. The dress is definitely a collector's piece. The dress's current owner is Ripley's Believe It or Not, which if you can believe it is not accredited, for handling fragile garments. They are a museum franchise, Ripley's is, not an accredited museum. This is the night that never goes away. Needless to say, when Kim Kardashian showed up at the Met Gala earlier this year in Marilyn Monroe's Happy Birthday Mr. President dress, it did cause quite a kerfuffle. Have a little bit more information from Artnet.com about the dress controversy. There is no disputing the fragility of the dress, and there was calculated risk associated with wearing it, Ripley's admits. 
Our mission is both to entertain and educate visitors and fans and sparking conversations like the discourse around Marilyn Monroe's dress does just that. No matter which side of the debate you are on, the historical importance of the dress has not been negated, but rather highlighted. The dress is especially precious because the material it is made of is marquisette, also known as French souffle fabric, which is so flammable that it has since been outlawed, and so it cannot be replaced. Ripley's normally stores the dress in a darkened vault at 68 degrees Fahrenheit with a carefully controlled humidity level of 40 to 50 percent, conditions that could not be replicated at the live event. Artnet continues saying that Kardashian did take numerous measures to protect the garment during the gala, including eschewing body makeup and losing 16 pounds to fit into the petite dress. In addition to two pre-gala fittings, Kardashian only wore the outfit for a matter of minutes. She set up a special dressing room just beyond the red carpet, changing with the assistance of a Ripley's conservator before gingerly climbing the Met stairs. Once the reality star entered the museum, she changed into a replica gown for the party itself. Concluding here with preservationists say, even touching vintage garments can damage them. I am not a dress archivist, but after all of that, I think I just might put the dress in a temperature-controlled vault so it does not catch fire. It is a dress laced with danger, apparently. Marilyn Monroe is in this particular Jean-Louis dress in the only known photographic image of her with Jack and Bobby Kennedy taken after the Madison Square Garden event. My goodness, it is here at the end of May that we're going to end this segment of our investigation. In our next Dunday, we're going to be back with the conclusion of our Marilyn Monroe episodes, taking a look at her life from her birthday on June the 1st, 1962, to sadly the end of her life in early August. Friends, I can't tell you how grateful I am for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, for your support of Done and Done for your kind emails and reviews. Simply amazing, the lot of you. If you need more Done and Done in the meantime, don't forget patreon.com slash Done and Done is the place to go. Lots of good bonus episodes over there pertaining to the not always linear, but always very well-connected spiderweb that is our world of Dominic Dunn. Thanks again, everyone. And until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.